Hey, so uh, James chapter five is where we are today. We're gonna actually jump into the, the middle of the chapter, verse 13, and we're wrapping up our 10-week series on James today. Super excited about what's next. We're gonna do a family vacation next week. That's gonna be a lot of fun. Um, talking about the dynamics of what it looks like when you go on vacation with a family. For most families, we're looking at the positive experiences. I know we all have those terrible stories, um, but uh, trying to infuse that as a church family as well, really going to have a lot of fun with that starting next week. But James chapter 5, what I love about James is he gives us a glimpse into church life as it was 2,000 years ago. We seem to glamorize the early church. You know, we read all these wonderful things that they did and all these great things that happened, and, and kudos, like that, that really did happen, and I really believe it. But as you read through the different letters to the churches, you realized, you realized that they really had some issues, that there were, there were a lot of things going on in those early churches, just like goes on in our churches today. And I don't know that church today looks just like it looked back then. I'm sure that there are changes that should be made to our structure, to, to how we interact with each other on a weekly basis, but culturally things are a lot different than they, than they were uh, back then. And I, I think that, that it's, it's like this organism that lives and breathes and, and we exhale and we inhale and things have to look differently depending on what season of life you are in personally in this church. But what I love about what James has done is he's given us a glimpse of of all the difficulties that the early church encountered and how he suggested they handle them. From suffering to praying, from rejoicing to singing, from sick, sickness to, to, to healing, uh, to sinning, to being forgiven, all of that was church life. And that is church life today. And, and, and Christians living in their community of believers and getting life out of that and growing in and through that, and depending on the relationships they, they had within that group of believers that they called the church. Life together as a church family is a mixture of a bunch of different people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different races, different, different everything. In any given service, you, you have, you have uh, someone about to give birth and you also have people who are making final preparations. You have people who just got fired and you have people who just got a job promotion. You have people who are newly married and people who are struggling with the possibility of divorce. You have, you have people who are new to their faith and you have people who are beginning to doubt some things. You have people who have rejoiced over miraculous healing in their life and then you have other people who have been recently diagnosed with an illness. So you have all of this happening all at the same time and you take any one of these people out of that community and their life and the life of the church would be so much less than what it is. One of the secrets of church is that it is life lived in community. Which means, and I believe this with all my heart, every church is quirky. Right? Let's just be real. Every church is quirky. Just like this church. Just like every New Testament church you read about. They all had issues, and so does every church today. But it is those quirky New Testament churches that God used to birth the gospel into this world. And it's those 
members of those quirky churches that God used to take this incredible message of the love of God throughout the known world. But the truth of the matter is, there is no such thing as a perfect church, right? Because there is no such thing as a perfect church member. Me included, definitely you. There is no such thing as a perfect church member. So there's never going to be a situation where you walk into a building, where you walk into a group of believers and you become part of a church where you can just sit there and say, well, this is about perfect because you're here. And you bring your imperfection with you and your quirkiness with you. And just as, just as faulty and just as, as full of problems as, as this guy is right here, trying to lead this thing with a, with a group of, of, of other leaders that we, we try and do our best, but we make mistakes. We have shortcomings. We have areas of life that need improvement, and so does this church, and so do you. But the truth of the matter is, it's so much easier to look to other people to fix who they are rather than look at your own self and say, I need, to get, I need to get busy working on my own self here. But instead, we look at the church and expect it to be perfect. We have this thing that I call normalcy bias to where whatever situation you are in, you get used to that. And then you don't realize how good you have it or how blessed it is. I think that's the truth with, with everything from your marriage to the car you drive, to the church you attend. Like you are used to your situation and you get used to your, your situation. And then pretty soon when you're not a contributor, when you're not actually doing stuff to benefit the body or your relationship with your wife or maintaining your car, all of a sudden you start finding fault. Have you ever sold a vehicle and you, and you decide, all right, I'm going I'm to sell this car. Well, then you spend a couple of days cleaning it up and fixing it all up, and all of a sudden you're like, huh, this car's not that bad. We just get used to it, and we don't realize, hey, it's the same way with, with your husband. Like, you clean him up, and he's like, hey, he's not that bad. You know, it just, <laughs> it's, it is, it's amazing when we begin to focus on, on what we do have and the blessings that God has given that it just changes our perspective. But normalcy bias creeps in and pretty soon you're, you're doing so little to contribute to the relationship that you begin to pull away and find fault and then you become miserable. And I'm okay with imperfect people because that's who we all are. But I think sometimes it's a good idea for us to sit back and say, this is what it is. And here, here's the thing. Like, I believe that God uses imperfect people in beautiful ways. And God chooses to use imperfect people and imperfect churches just like this one to reach the world and grow us. And I'm happy because otherwise I'd be out. Like honestly, like if you, um, if you follow, follow me around all day, I'd probably disappoint you. Especially if you follow me while I'm driving. It, I'd be right, of course, but everybody else would be wrong. It is, it's, it's one of those things where, where sometimes 
we have expectations of people and we're like, like they just don't meet up to those expectations so we get disappointed and we don't realize that we're all human beings. We all have imperfections. We're all quirky. But these imperfect people are making an effort to be more like Jesus. And that happens best when we do these things together. Real Christianity is learning that true faith is found right here. Now, now listen very carefully. Like, like in all of your own quirky relationships, in your own quirky church, this is what God wants to use to make you who you need to be. This is, this is the beautiful thing about church. The beautiful thing about church is not that you are in a perfect environment, but that God uses that perfect environment to perfect you. Because God knows you need those other people in your life and that environment that you're in and the struggles that you experience to make you who you need to become. Because God's not done working on you. And God, isn't it amazing that God can use situations and other imperfect people in your life to make you a better version of yourself, to make you more like Jesus. True faith is to be found in quirky little churches. Not running from one place to the other trying to find the perfect church. I hope we understand there is no such thing. But I really believe that living life in community is what we are made to do. We are made to live life together. And that's the name of today's sermon is life together. And I think that's what James is showing us in the book of James, that there's all of these issues with the church that he was writing to and the Christians that he was writing to. And he's addressing them, but he's not saying, go find you another church. He's saying, become a better version of yourself in the church that you're in with the people that you do life with. We are made to do life together. We can certainly suffer on our own and we can pray on our own and we can rejoice on our own. But we were created for community. James is addressing these issues, assuming that these believers are in community with each other. And as a faith community, this is what I love about what James does. As a faith community, we should cultivate Godward living. So as, as you are experiencing success, as you are experiencing suffering, I should, as a fellow believer, as a friend in the faith, as part of your community, encourage you to look Godward and to respond to your situation in a Christ-like manner. And so he addresses that in verse 13. And it's really interesting what a concise little package he puts into this one verse. And he says, regardless of what your situation is, we should look to God. And the first thing that he addresses here is that if you're suffering, then that should cause you to pray. So we have, you have one of two possibilities in verse 13. The first one is you're suffering. And if you're suffering, you should pray. And he divides suffering up into two categories. He says this in verse 13. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Now, this word suffering that we see in James 13, the first part of the verse there, that word suffering is the word affliction. And it has the idea of having some hardship from the outside. So something is happening to you. Maybe it's somebody who has uh, less than good uh, motives for what they're doing. Or maybe it's some persecution that, you are, that you're experiencing because of your faith. 
The word suffering here refers to all kinds of problems like spiritual, physical, material, relational, financial. They're problems from without that are causing hardships. That's the kind of suffering he's talking about here. Is any among you suffering or afflicted? Let him pray. But I think what he's encouraging us to do here, though, is not just pray for relief from the situation, but for endurance to be able to withstand the experience. So there's, there's one kind of suffering I believe he's talking about here, and that is affliction. But there's another one in the next couple of verses following in verses 14 through 16, where he also talks about actual sickness. He says this in verse 14, 15, and 16. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Interesting there. They're so sick that they can't go to the elders. I'd never noticed that before. But they're sick enough where they're having to call for the elders of the church to come to them. And the elders were just older leaders in the church that had, had, some, had some ability to help guide and minister to the congregation. And let them pray over him. And I think this is really interesting. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And I've been in ministry for a long time. And I've been part of groups where we anoint people with oil. And, uh, and, and WD-40 seems to work the best. Sometimes, um, come on, people, that was funny. Um, but different kinds of oil, uh, you know, who knows what they used back then. But I, my point being this, that, that the oil that they used was not just like symbolic, although we, we feel like the oil, there's many uses for oil in Scripture, and there's a lot of times when people were anointed with oil, and it's an unusual custom that was very common and understood back in the day. But oil was used as a medicine. Oil was used as a symbol of God's blessing on somebody. Oil was used as a symbol of the Holy Spirit empowering somebody. Oil could be used just as preparation for daily activities. But here, the word anointing in this specific case is a specific Greek word that just meant Rubbing on medicine. So the oil was like medicine. And so what I find super interesting here, and, and, and we can over-spiritualize this and think that there's something magical about the oil that was being used or whatever. If you send me 100 bucks, I'll send you some oil. You know, I'll cry on a hanky and send it to you. Or you can just read this the way I think James is, reading, is writing it, and that is take your medicine and get people to pray for you. So the idea here is, is, that, is that when you're anointed with oil, that there, was a, there was a medicinal purpose to it. And so do what you know that you should do to feel better, but then also get the elders of the church to pray over you. And then he says this. He says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven him. Now here's a couple things I think are really important for us to understand about prayer. What I see here is not a magical formula because I've prayed for a lot of people who did not get well, my mom and dad included. And I don't understand why God chooses not. And, and I really believe this, that, that, that what you see here is not this formula 
That's like a genie in a lamp that if we do this, then God's going to do what we ask him to do. What we should be praying is that God does what God wants to do and give him the authority and give him, have the understanding that he gets to do what God's going to do. But a couple things about prayer I want to mention. First of all, I think prayer should be a first resort. We often leave prayer as a last resort. But I really believe that prayer should be a first resort. When, when you're in a conflict with your wife or maybe your children, do you shoot up a prayer of wisdom that God would give you a calm spirit? Do you ask for wisdom to be able to, to handle this situation in a way that would honor the Lord? You want to be an example to your family on how to handle conflict. So you're going to pray and ask God to help you resolve this, maybe to even check your anger a little bit. That's the kind of prayer we're talking about. Like, like it needs to be your first resort, not when things are falling apart to the place where I don't know what to do and I need God to fix this. It's like the first thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pray and ask God to help me in this moment, a first resort. When you face a problem at work, do we do what we call a, ne a Nehemiah prayer? One of my favorite stories in Nehemiah 2. Nehemiah was, was being held captive in a foreign land, and he's, he's the cupbearer for the king. He was, like, he was like the guy that got to taste test the food before the king got it. That's the kind of job I think God has made me for. Like, I think that I would be a great taste tester. In that situation, though, I don't know that it would be as desirable because you, you, he, was, he, was the, he was the wall before anybody could poison the king, right? So I think what, we, what I would do is I would ask for an assistant. I need an assistant cupbearer and I'll let him taste it before I taste it. And then we pass it on to the king and we'll give him like a couple of minutes to see what happens. And then, you know, so I, there's applications available if you'd like to be that. But there, there, he was a taste tester for the king, cupbearer for the king. So he's in the presence of the king here in Nehemiah chapter two. And his, his countenance was fallen. He was sad. And that was, that was a situation worthy of death. Like you didn't walk into King Artaxerxes with a crestfallen spirit because everything in his life was supposed to be beautiful. And you literally could be put to death if you walked into his presence sad. But the king notices and the king says, Nehemiah, why are you so sad? And this is the end of verse four. It says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. And then the very beginning of the next verse says, and I said to the king. Now I want you to notice how instantaneous that was. So I said a prayer, and then I said to the king. I prayed a prayer, and then I said to the king. I don't think Nehemiah said, one moment, and then trots away for a couple of days, and then comes back. I believe it was this instantaneous breath that basically said, God, help me right now. I need the right words to say. And I believe that a prayer like that is reflective of a heart that understands its need of the Lord right now in my life. I think prayer should be our first resort. When your car needs repair. I know, right? But do you pray for a mechanic that can do a good job at a good price? When you need medical attention, do you pray that the doctor has wisdom when you're experiencing financial problems, do you pray for wisdom to be a good steward of what God has given you? 
All I'm saying is that, is that in every situation of life, we need to remember that prayer should be a first resort and not a last resort. How are we doing with that? We often pray as a last resort after we've done everything we can to fix the problem. We scheme, we plan, we work hard, and then maybe we remember to pray something like, all right, God, bless my efforts here. Someone has said, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you shouldn't do anything until you have prayed. Powerful words. Pray as a first resort. Another observation about prayer, and I love what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians. He said, pray without ceasing. It was sandwiched in between three impossible commands. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16, 17, and 18, rejoice evermore, <laughs> pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. Really? Those are three very difficult commands. But it'll comfort you to know that the idea of praying without ceasing, the same words that he uses there, are similar to somebody who has um, uh, a, a continuous cough. Like, you know, somebody when they get kind of sick, they, they just seem to cough a lot. And they just cough and cough and cough and cough. That's, that's kind of what the same verbiage, the same wording when it says pray without ceasing. It's just this continuous thing that you do. So obviously I don't want you closing your eyes and praying when you're driving. I don't want you, you know, at the, you got to open your mouth to put food in it sometimes. You need to talk to other people. So it's not like this continuous prayer that starts at, you know, 12.01 a.m. and goes till midnight. It's, it's that you are always in this attitude that I need God in my life every moment of my life. It is, it is this, okay, so, so when you pray, the idea is, is acknowledging that I'm totally dependent upon God in every moment of my life. Like, Lord, I can't even draw my next breath without you. And if this doesn't work out for your honor and the greatest good and your glory, then I don't even want it to happen. And you have such a heartfelt understanding of the need that you have of God Almighty, that it seeps into everything you do, every route you take home, every, every mile you put in your car, every breath that you take, every conversation you have, you're breathing a prayer to God, asking for his wisdom and guidance in this situation and with, and with this person. And there's never a time in your life where you feel like, I got this, because you're totally dependent upon God. And then finally, with, with this idea of prayers, pray as a first resort, pray without ceasing, and, and pray with an open heart. This is my favorite. Because like we want God to pray, when we pray, we want God to bless this prayer, right? This one right here that I'm mentioning to you. Like this is how I want you to work, God. And so I'm gonna pray to this end. James chapter five is telling us that we should pray when we suffer. And we should pray as a first resort. We should pray without ceasing, according to Paul. But we also should pray with an open heart. Are we really open to whatever God wants? Do we have the courage and the confidence in a loving God to pray a prayer like this? Nevertheless, thy will be done. That's what Jesus prayed. Because I may think that this is what makes sense to me, and this is what I would, would write down if I was given the opportunity 
to determine the outcome of this particular situation. But maybe God is wanting to do something other than heal. Maybe God is wanting to do something other than change their mind or their heart or fix the problem according to your prescription. When you or somebody you love encounters a trial, maybe we should pray for wisdom. Maybe we should pray for the ability to endure this situation with joy. Maybe we should pray for a godly attitude through this trial towards that person or towards the circumstance. Maybe we should pray that God will be known through all of this. Maybe we should pray that God would use whatever this is for his purpose. Pray with an open heart. So James gives us one instruction here, and there's only one more. The first instruction is, if you're suffering, pray. That's a Godward response. That's a reminder to ourselves that there's always a great response to any situation in life. And when you're suffering, you should pray. And then he says this, if you're successful, then you should praise. So if you're suffering, you pray. Success should cause you to praise. He finishes chapter five, verse 13 with this. Is anyone cheerful? Let him praise. So he said, is anyone suffering? Let him pray. If anybody is cheerful, let him sing. Praise. The natural response when you are doing well, like the natural response when you have enough sufficiency of life is to forget God. When everything's going good, that's when we don't pray. And James is saying, when you're cheerful, when things are going well, you're, there, there's still a proper response. And that is a Godward focus. And so you thank God for all his goodness. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, no matter what situation you're in, you're either praying or you're praising. If you're suffering, you pray. If you're cheerful, you praise. Recognize the one who made all this possible. David wrote in Psalm 103, he said this, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Why does he say that? Because he knows we forget his benefits. We know, but I, let, me, let me tell you this, one little blood vessel burst and your life will change forever. One broken ankle and all of a sudden, oh God, I need you. One car accident, one phone call, one doctor visit, your whole world will be changed. It's, just, it's like but when we're successful, we don't acknowledge that because everything is going great. What James is saying, a God would respond. And why we're here, why we live in community with each other is to remind ourselves, if you're suffering, let's pray about it. If you're being successful, let's praise the Lord. Let's always acknowledge God in every moment of our life throughout the day because he's the one who's making all the possible and he's the one who can help the situation. James gives a stark contrast between suffering and cheerfulness. But we are to be cultivating a Godward response in every area of life because there is always a proper response to life's circumstances. And my encouragement to you this morning is regardless of what your circumstance is, Respond as a believer. 
Like there really is a purpose behind all of this. Like God really is in control. Like God really does have a part in what's happening in my life. I so love what John Calvin said. He said, there is no time in which God does not invite us to himself. So I don't know where you are in life. I don't know at what moment you needed to hear this, but wherever you are, that's the moment God wants to invite you into himself. I don't know what your relationship was like with the Lord. I don't know what you need this morning. I don't know what God is calling you to do today. But know this, that you are invited in. And the answer always is to look to him. Regardless of whether you feel like your life is going great, look to him and thank him. Thank him for the blessings. Thank him for whatever in your life you feel is going great. Acknowledge him. If you're suffering this morning, if you've got questions, or you're not sure, acknowledge him. Let him be God, but pray about it. Get people to pray with you about it. Get some perspective. Whether you're suffering or whether you are successful, whether you are sad, whether you are cheerful, you're either going to pray or you're going to praise. I believe this, that God is calling you to himself, but your response is the determining factor as to what happens with that calling. Because he's not going to force his love on anybody. But he calls you into himself. And wherever you are in life, if you have, if you have never begun that relationship with the Lord, he's calling you in. And your decision is the determining factor. If you're struggling this morning, he's calling you in. And your response to his invitation is the critical missing piece as to what happens as a result of. If you're living like things seem to be going super well, good for you. Honor the Lord in that. He's inviting you in and remember all his benefits. There's always a proper response to any circumstance in life. Pray or praise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how practical it is. Thank you for James recording these words in the heart of our Father. And we do acknowledge you this morning. Whatever you're doing in the lives of your people, I pray, Father, that you would call them in, make them feel that calling, and that we would respond accordingly. We love you. God, we need you this morning. We don't want to we don't want to walk out of here thinking that we've got this under control because we will come to a place in our life where we desperately need you. And I pray, Father, we'd recognize that now, whether we are in sorrow, whether we are suffering, whether we are rejoicing, whether we are in success, that we would have a response to you, either prayer or praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.